Every once in a while, a conversation on this podcast hits me out of nowhere and strikes a deep chord within me. This episode is that conversation. For years, we've talked about our decreasing libido and what that means to our relationships and our self-esteem. It can make us feel deflated. But have we been looking at this the wrong way? From everything I've read and heard, the onus is on us to fix it, as if we alone are the problem. And what that does is make us retreat and feel hopeless and, quite frankly, sometimes like a failure. But I'm calling BS on that after today. Nicole Schroeder is a registered social worker. She completed her postgrad training in couple and individual therapy and emotion-focused therapy and sex therapy. She currently works in an outpatient gynecology clinic at a downtown Toronto hospital and in private practice. And Nicole also facilitates virtual groups and courses on a variety of topics related to sexual well-being at Bria, a virtual mental health clinic in Ontario, and a previous podcast guest on the She 2.0 podcast. What Nicole has to say is honestly a game changer for me, and I hope for everyone listening to this, it made me feel like I actually have control of this when I realized that our sex drive isn't what we think. It isn't all or nothing, and it isn't the responsibility of just one person in a relationship. When Nicole explains how it all works, I actually felt emotional. I realized that I have been normal. I have been feeling normal. And everything I'm feeling and my perspective on this is a result of not understanding libido. And just like that, my attitude towards sex changed. And I had hope for my relationship. I should correct that and say, I do have hope for my relationship. Like so many topics around menopause, I am always shocked by what we aren't told. Anyway, I think you're going to find this a really interesting podcast. So tune in and listen to Nicole Schroeder. Hi, Nicole. Hello. I am so happy that you're joining me today. Um, I've had several conversations, not just with, you know, women who listen to the podcast or come to our, our site, but also just girlfriends and friends. You know, you have a few glasses of wine, you start talking about you know, some of the things that do or do not happen behind closed doors anymore. So when I heard that you have a very different perspective than the one that I have been sort of harboring for, for years, that low libido and sex drive, it's all on me. Mm-hmm. I was really, really anxious to talk to you because I think it's really important to start looking at this a different way so that women can feel better about their sex lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. And I'm really excited to be here. And this is a topic that I think is incredibly important. And yeah, thank you for having me because I can't wait to talk about this. Great. So, I mean, my experience is obviously just personal and speaking with, like I said, friends and and audience and members of She 2.0, mm-hmm. but you have more experience than I do. Do you want to tell me a bit about that? Yeah, for sure. So I'm a I'm a social worker by background and I've worked with with people, families, couples, individuals for many, many years now. Um I'm a psychotherapist, so I do have a private practice and I am a BESCO certified sex therapist here in Ontario. So these are all sorts of um topics that I feel very passionate about. I also work uh in a gynecology clinic at a downtown Toronto hospital. So I'm working with a lot of folks who have, you know, different gynecological conditions, low desire, menopause symptoms, 
um, you know, different conditions like this that are a real part of all of our everyday lives. And so I feel very passionate about education, but I also feel very passionate about kind of myth busting. Um, and when it comes to sex, this is one of these areas that we have a lot of narratives that may not be factual. Uh, they may not be based in actual evidence. Um, and it's also very personal and people don't talk about it a lot. So I'm delighted to kind of talk about this and my experience. Well, that's great. Like, I, I think back to your point, we don't talk about this. Sex is sort of the stigma within the stigma. So we have menopause and now we have mm-hmm. sex. And we're not talking about any of these things because my personal belief is whether it is through society or the media or just our own insecurities, I feel like in both of those areas, we tend to sort of feel failure. Mm-hmm. Um, like our body is failing us. We can no longer produce or reproduce, even if we wanted to or not. Um, you know, things are starting to change. And that has somehow been communicated as a negative thing to us. And as far as sex, that's a very, very lonely experience. Like I myself, personal experience. When I tell people that, you know, we don't have an active sex life anymore, they say, well, why don't you just put out, like, why don't you just do this? Or like, because I, it's deeper than that. And that actually sort of makes me feel resentful that this is all on me. Yeah. So maybe what I'll do is I'll, I'll give a little bit of my kind of perspective on these kind of questions around, like, is it all on me? If, 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 this is kind of where you go. One of the questions that I always sort of ask people when I'm talking about sex in a partnered relationship is what is your relationship outside of sex like? Um, you know, traditional couples therapy has done a really bad job historically of, of sort of addressing these issues around sexuality. The sort of prevailing thought used to be that, you know, if the relationship issues were addressed, then the sex would take care of itself. And we now know that isn't true. And I personally see a lot of loving couples who are happy and communicate well, but sex is tricky. And I think, you know, that's an important piece to remember because we have a lot of narratives that sort of go, if people's sex life is struggling in a a partnership, people tend to go to these scenarios of like, maybe we're not really compatible for each other. If we were the right right people for each other, wouldn't this just sort of work out? Or we've Um, fallen out of love or it's over. Right, right. Yeah, instead very doomsdayical thinking. Instead of just, you know, maybe things have changed because we're different people and things have happened along the way and our bodies are different and we need to just kind of rejig. But I think, you know, there's a, a psychologist who's a kind of well-renowned sex therapist named Barry McCarthy. And he talks about how, you know, sex should be a sort of 15% of any relationship, right? There's all these different silos and facets of relationships. And, and sex is a part of it, but it isn't the whole part. But he talks about how when there are troubles in this area, it goes from sort of 15% of the relationship to like 70% of the relationship. Its importance gets inflated. Why? And, Why is that? Well, I think it's partially because people don't have an outlet to talk about it in a productive way. You know, a lot of times sex brings up shame for people or we've never been educated on how to talk about it in a reasonable way. Um, and I think also too, you know, in our society, we're very individualistic. So we tend to look at it like, what is, what is the problem from my perspective? And this kind of ties in with what I wanted to talk about when kind of women are saying, you know, I don't feel like a sexual person and what do I have to do about this? I look at these as very much a team approach. So, you know, going back to how your relationship is, like, how do you function in your relationship? 
you know, again, when I was saying that I felt that, you know, we don't often do a good job of talking about sort of healthy relationships that are having trouble sexually. I also think that sometimes we discount how our day-to-day relationship plays out on our sex. So if your day-to-day communication with one another is kind of hostile, crabby, or contemptuous, um, you are probably going to likely feel less interest in connecting intimately. And I think that's an important part to remember, right? Like the great relationship doesn't equal great sex, but in very few cases in my experience, do hostile negative relationships also equal great sex. Yeah. It's so interesting you say that because just in our first couple of minutes of this chat, this is a very different conversation than I've ever had about this because you've touched on some really critical things for me. Um, The fact that sex is 15% of your relationship, but gets inflated. I asked you why that is, but I also immediately understood it. Mm -hmm. Um, It's almost like, for me, it's like, that's the bar. If we can't even have sex anymore, things are really bad. Or, you know, if we can still have sex, I guess we have something to work on. I almost all of a sudden, whether you're having it or not, it becomes significant. Um, The other thing too, is the 15% of you know, our relationship is based around sex. You know, I, I bet you people would have thought it was a way higher number than that. But, you know, after years of marriage, I, I think it does get slightly demoted. But <laughs> I I kind of feel like that's a that's kind of like women too. You know, we are confused between being sexual and sexy. <laughs> you know, I think putting on a little dress and showing some cleavage, while that might be sexy, it doesn't make you sexually appealing. Sexual to me is more the inside, how you feel on the inside. Like, are you feeling amorous? Are you feeling confident? Are you feeling good about your body? Are you feeling expressive? It's not just the way you dress or the way you do your hair or makeup. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. a full picture thing, but I do believe the sexual side is the more important side. Yeah. And I'm I'm glad that you brought that up because I have some thoughts on that. You know, one thing about sort of McCarthy's uh, conceptualization of the 15% is also, and I, I really want to stress this, is that it's going to be different for different people, right? Like for some people, sex is a really vital, important part of their identity and their relationships. For other people, it is less important. And, and those are fine. Like both of them are fine. If to be highly kind of sexually driven is, is fine to be not so sexually driven is fine. I think where it gets complicated is when you are in a long-term relationship and those discrepancies are different. Right. And that's where I think a lot of the conflict comes because, you know, again, these are different ways of kind of being. Um, but that is the first thing that I often ask people, like, how distressed are you by the current situation? Because if you're not experiencing much distress, there might be less kind of incentive to want to change things. Um, because sometimes, you know, there can be with conflict, there can be moments of of change and, and opportunity. So I, I always ask people to kind of think about this. And then I am a big believer in the team based approach, whether we're talking about sexuality or we're talking about um relationships it's it's kind of like what do i want what do they want and what's going to work for the team so i am a big believer in compromise whether we're talking about sexuality whether we're talking about relationship dynamics um i hope that didn't go off on a tangent i I do want (laughs) to also talk about what you're saying about the like sexy versus sexual but i wanted to give you a second to respond to the 
team approach. I really, yeah, I really like that. You had actually sent me over an article, which I will share. um, And I didn't get all the way through it, but it does sort of, it was comforting to see that there are different triggers for wanting sex. And then there are good triggers and bad triggers. Um, You know, there is like sex out of desperation to keep a relationship or maybe to have a baby or whatever, but then there are the good triggers. Um, I think we just look at sex very one dimensional, you know, it is or it isn't. And I am so tired of hearing women beat themselves up about libido. And I I think it's great. There are supplements out there, but, you know, um, we don't, we're not really encouraged to work on our relationship. We're encouraged to work on ourselves. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen mom porn. Have you ever heard of mom porn? It's like, not familiar with, Oh, it's great. I'm going to like, I'm going to, yeah, my thumbnail is going to be mom porn. It's like a dude in the kitchen doing dishes and holding a baby. Mm-hmm. Or, okay. yes, yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like those things are foreplay. And, you know, I we get, we are so caught up in foreplay being about maybe sex toys or stimulation sexually or physically. But for women, I think, and you can tell me if this is right or wrong, but I think foreplay begins as soon as you wake up in the morning, the way you greet each other, the way you treat each other, the division of labor, the help with the mental load, the respect, the kindness, the empathy, those things to me, if you don't have those, you're not getting anything in the bedroom. Yeah, I I 100% agree with you. I mean, foreplay is is all the time. And I I don't say that to try to be intimidating to people. Um, That's not what I'm saying is that you have to run around being kind of a sex kitten at all times. That would be very intimidating. Mm-hmm. But but I think what happens is that we separate sex from the relationship. And if we're talking particularly in a long term partnered relationship, uh, I think it's essential that you are not separating the two. I mean, it kind of goes back to what I ask people, which is, is how is the relationship otherwise? Again, like if if you feel resentful and you're exhausted and you're doing the lion's share of, of childcare, you know, I mean, emotional labor is the thing that we're talking about all the time. Um, it's going to be very likely that you are going to feel less uh, enticed to kind of, you know, get yourself in the mood to be intimate. Um, and and resentment is, is frankly, a killer of any kind of libido. Um, mm-hmm. So I think, you know, you, you really have to look at also like what is happening in this relationship and, and how can we how can we work with this relationship to make this more appealing? Like, how does the team kind of operate in this? It's a team issue. And this is a very similar thing that I talk about, whether we're talking about like low, like low desire that's secondary to like pelvic pain um, that, you know, people with vaginas are having, or if I'm working with people with penises that have erectile dysfunction, mm-hmm. these, these conditions are best approached as a team, as a supportive, loving team. And, you know, for anyone that's interested too, Barry McCarthy also has a kind of uh, a sex model called the good enough sex model that really kind of talks about sex and long-term relationships and how you are an intimate sexual team and, and your job is to kind of support each other in this dynamic, right? It's, it's not about the, the sex toys and the positions and what have you, like intimacy begins with, with feeling connected. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I also feel like whether you're in a relationship or not, I know we're talking about relationships, but Sometimes I think when we go through a big life change like perimenopause or menopause and we're not talking about it, we're denying it, we're in denial. 
I feel like we lose that connection with ourselves as well. So even self-pleasure takes a back seat. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, this is where I kind of harp on this a lot, but I've learned the hard way. Like if you aren't using things down there, you could lose them. You could have problems, atrophy, et cetera. You won't even know until you either decide to become sexually active again, or perhaps you go for a pap smear and you find out the hard way. Like <laughs> it's really important. Sex is so important, not just in our relationships, but in our lifestyle. And again, we are kind of taught that, especially if we're not in a relationship, that sex is something you sort of save for a relationship. We're still kind of taught that, you know, seeking pleasure is naughty. Yeah, it's it's interesting, right? And I this is what I, I love kind of being at this age right now. And I mean, I'm very, you know, we've, we've talked about this before. I mean, I'm in the menopause transition myself. Um, but I you have so much age. collagen. Look at you. <laughs> <laughs> I want some of that. <laughs> it's you can buy it. I mean, this is the great thing about being older. You know, you <laughs> we have more money. You can buy things. Not I know that's not everyone's experience, but but you know there are are positives about being young, but there are a lot of positives about being older. And and I, I feel very strongly, you know, that that you don't really have an option. Like we're either going to age or not. And aging is a benefit and a privilege. And so we can either, you know, shake our fist at the sun for rising or, or we can lean in. And, and that's not to downplay all of the challenges that come from this, right? Especially when we're having hormonal changes, when, when things are not, you know, maybe working in the way that they once did. But the more that we can kind of lean in, and, and try and accept it. I mean, it's sort of almost the tenets of mindfulness, right? Like we're trying to just accept where we're at and, and have self-compassion. So, I, I mean, I agree. I think, I think sexuality and I, sorry, I went on a bit of a tangent there. What I was going to say <laughs> was that the thing I love about being this age is that I get to also spend time with my, my Gen X cohort who are going through the menopause transition and also younger people who who give me so much hope for the for the future, to be honest with you, in the way that they conceptualize sex. Um, because I think even for people who are kind of in their late 40s, you know, who who came of age before the internet, you know, there was a, a different view. Like sex was very much considered like penis in the vagina. That's what sex was. Yeah. Um, and I think now younger generations are much more fluid about this. And so when we talk about like a woman being sexual, this can be anything. This can, this is making out, this is masturbating. This is having sex with someone. This is engaging in like phone sex. If people even do that anymore, I guess no one really talks on the phone, but we're texting. Um, <laughs> sexting. And, and so I think it's important to just kind of like really embrace and open the idea of what sexuality is, right? It, it's not about necessarily being partnered. Um, you know, and I, I also think it's important to kind of accept that you don't have to wait to feel a certain way to act on things. Um, and I, maybe I'll stop there and, and just let you respond, but this is the whole concept of responsive desire, which I feel very strongly about. I actually, I'm curious about responsive desire. Like, um, what you just said right now, don't wait, mm -hmm. um, to act on something. Do you mean, um, don't wait till you're in the mood or do you mean, what, can you just sort of explain yeah. that? I definitely mean don't wait until you're in the mood. And and I think this is a real, uh, this is something that we know happens, particularly in long-term relationships. 
um, is that, you know, if you wait around for two people to be in the mood for sex at the same time, like you're going to be waiting a long time like, <laughs> because it's, it's just not, it, it isn't how it works often for a lot of people. I want to say for some people it may, and that's mm-hmm. amazing. That's great. But what we know from the research is that this is not the average experience, particularly for women, is that this kind of spontaneous desire, this this feeling of just feeling turned on and wanting to have sex. If women have it, it's generally in a new the beginning of a new relationship. And, and that's when we refer to the honeymoon stage, it's actually a stage sex therapists would refer to it as the limerence phase of a relationship. And the, the and which phase? The limerence phase. Yeah. Okay. I know it's not the most uh it it's not the most the sexy word. <laughs> it certainly isn't. And and you know, probably this is in some ways like some of this is not sexy. It's not what we have been kind of taught to what sexy is, but it's it's actually mimics people's experiences. And I think that sometimes knowing what other people are experiencing or what the majority of people are experiencing can really help people rephrase, or sorry, reframe their own kind of what's happening for them. You know, we know that when, you know, the, the most common thing that I hear from people is they'll say, you know, when we first met, we were having sex all the time. It was amazing. It was effortless. Um, you know, it, what happened? And, and what happens is that people then sort of create a narrative around this. Well, maybe we're not right for each other. Maybe it wasn't meant to work out. You know, maybe we there's something wrong with me. Maybe there's something wrong with them. And, and again, like this is more of a nuanced conversation, but what we know is that kind of limerence phase of a, a sexual relationship, if it's in the beginning can last for sort of six months to 18 months. Desire changes with time because we're not being propelled to have these kind of endorphin rushes and, and, you know, oxytocin kind of being created in the brain in response to a new experience. So it is very normal for it to change. And that doesn't mean that you have to then be content with never feeling desire, but it means that you have to approach desire potentially in a different way. And that's where kind of responsive desire comes in. Good Um, point. Yeah. So when I think of responsive desire, what it means is not waiting until you're in the mood to have sex or to be sexual. For me, that could be another decade. I'm not even kidding. Right? Most (laughs) people are like, you know... I mean, this is one thing that I always find a little bit um, funny is that when the pandemic started happening, people thought, oh, there's going to be these baby booms. Like, you know, people are going to have <laughs> nothing to do except be home together. We know that that didn't happen. Um, you know, often what we found in Esther Perel, who's a, an amazing psychotherapist, uh, who I also recommend people read, wrote about this in her kind of work, Mating in Captivity, which is an amazing book about how overfamiliarity um doesn't help with intimacy, how we need a bit of mystery in our relationships. And being kind of stuck together with everyone for going on three years did not create a lot of mystery. No mystery there. No. So in terms of like, how do you create responsive desire? And and Dr. Rosemary Basson, who is an absolute genius, she is the director of the sexual health clinic at UBC Hospital in Vancouver. She created this cycle of responsive desire uh, and anyone listening that's interested, you could just Google cycle of responsive desire and it will, I think you're going to link the article that I sent over to you. And basically what it says is that, you know, the majority of, of women in long-term relationships that they have done the research on experience generally only responsive desire, which means desire that has developed by kind of putting yourself into 
the act. I want to be very clear that that doesn't mean doing something that you don't want to do. That Mm -hmm. is a very different situation. But how I often describe it is it's kind of like, you know, if someone says, would you want to have sex tonight? Or you think to yourself, would I want to have sex tonight? And your response is like, meh, I could go either way. I'm not really keen. I'm not exactly against it. That is what is considered in Basson cycle sexual neutrality. It means that you could meh, go either way. And you are willing to kind of stick with the process to see where it takes you. So what Basson would then say is that then you add a sexual stimuli. So maybe that means like doing something. And again, kind of going back to what you were talking about makes you feel sexual. Like what makes you feel sexy? What makes you feel good? For some people, it's like, you know, having a shower, putting on makeup, doing those sorts of things. For other people, it's going to be like setting mood. For other people, it's like, you know, just getting comfortable, like getting your head in the game. I think a lot of times people think like, okay, I I just have to wait for this to come to me. And the problem is is that it it doesn't often work like that. And then people kind of go meta. They feel bad about themselves. They feel bad that they don't want to have sex. And then they wonder what's wrong with them. So, you know, Basson's work has been really revolutionary for people because it sort of says if you have a kind of, you know, neutral willingness, so to speak, and you add in the right ingredients, you can develop arousal. And what that means is then as you start to get into the act, desire develops later. I, you almost made me cry. (laughs) I think mostly from a sense of relief that this is the first time even even before you know she 2.0 came into being this is the first time i've ever felt uh not alone in this one you know there are many things we feel alone about when it comes to menopause and perimenopause but this one was a bigger one for me i felt you know and i bet you a lot of women might echo this like like you said it's a failure it's failure on my part it's a a failure in like, we're not meant for each other. We're not going to make it. Um, it's a failure because I thought I'll never get my libido back. But, but again, I was thinking my libido had to come to me. (laughs) That's, you know, I think, I think we all think that we need a pill. We need a, we need a female version of Viagra. We need something, but it really is a two way street. Um, but it's so healthy and helpful to hear it positioned the way you just said that like that takes i think that takes so much pressure off like and it's a relief to know there's nothing wrong i mean the research shows actually things are just tickety-boo the way they are for most people and that this is okay but it is this is why i really wanted to talk to you nicole because wow they weren't kidding when they said you have a different approach that's oh. a game changer. Oh, wow. Thank you for saying that. I'm I'm glad that it it resonates. And and I mean, I, I do, you know, Basson's work around responsive desire is has been revolutionary from a sex therapy perspective. But again, you know, sometimes like we live in our silos and I just assume that everyone's talking about responsive desire and I, I don't think they are. Nope. Um and one of like the things that I often talk about when I'm I'm facilitating groups is that you know, this is important information because again, it it doesn't necessarily change things, but it changes people's perspectives, which then change the way that they can act. You know, if if people are also interested, Emily Nagoski, who's a, a sex researcher, has a, an amazing book called Come As You Are. 
And she talks about this too. And in, in her research, she talks about how 85% of women in long-term relationships only experience responsive desire. And yet we're not talking about it. Oh, so there uh, is yeah. 85% of these women, you know, a good chunk of people who feel like something's wrong with them. And actually they're the vast majority. So the problem is, is that we don't talk about it. And, and when we don't talk about it, people think that there's something wrong with them. If well, we yeah, it, you feel abnormal. Yeah, yeah. You know, it also doesn't help. And, and this is something I feel very strongly about. And, and I, I might have a little bit of an unconventional view on this. But we, we get our education and our information about sex, either from a kind of sanitized, um, like sex education programs in school, which again, maybe are more health based. I, I do think they're changing. But again, that, that isn't everything. Or we get it from pop culture and pornography. And, and what I said that I think I might be a little unconventional is that I actually think what we learn about it in sort of mainstream pop culture is in some ways more disruptive and detrimental than, than the myths in pornography. Because even though pornography, what we're exposed to and what people kind of are exposed to at an increasingly young age is, is influential and can be harmful, can also be positive depending on the person's situation. It, most people that are adults will understand that these are fantasies and highly unlikely to happen. I mean, we all get a lot of Uber Eats. I have yet to have an orgy take place when I'm getting my pizza delivered, right? <laughs> I mean, most most people know that this is pretend. Yes. <laughs> but it's what happens in pop culture, in kind of mainstream television, that I find more concerning. Because what we see is often a white, thin, good-looking heterosexual couple who engages in kissing for sort of two minutes. They take their clothes off. They have sex in a missionary position and both have an orgasm at the same time. Oh, yes. And, and this, is, this is what we see repetitively. Sorry, repeatedly. And, and it is highly unlikely that that is the average experience for most people. But what it teaches us is that that is what's normal that it is perfectly normal, that it's the expectation that people have orgasms at the same time, that people like foreplay takes a few minutes and, and that everyone's having a great time. It's effortless. Yeah. It doesn't really cut into your schedule too much. It's just so prescriptive and done and done. But it's acting, you know, I, yeah, I mean, exactly. it's, you can set your watch by it. Yeah. But so I, is, like, we don't like even orgasm, you know, I, I'm embarrassed to say how old I was when I realized that not having an orgasm just from sex alone with no stimulation um, was not normal. Like, I thought that's the only way it really happened. And mm -hmm. I thought that, again, something was wrong with me. My doctor never talked to me about it. You know, I'm an older generation. My parents didn't obviously talk to me. I didn't learn it in school. Mm -hmm. I don't even know where I learned it. Probably a girlfriend of mine. Mm -hmm. But isn't that crazy that, like... I don't know about men, but women, we, we grow up and hopefully, like you said, the next generation is different, but we grow up feeling like um, our feelings around it are unhealthy or wrong, or we feel shame or guilt. And we feel like we're not normal. We're not functioning properly. And we're too scared to ask or too embarrassed to ask. And we don't know who to ask. Mm -hmm. We're just left in this void. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really, it's demoralizing for people. Right. And again, I think that's where, where we go back to what we're seeing in pop culture is so influential because it, you know, just watching rom-coms, like 
we would think that that's the only way that you have orgasms and that's how you should be having orgasms. And it, it isn't true. No. Um, you know, so, so I'm not shocked because I hear this all the time. So um, I think that's why it's so important to provide people kind of evidence-based information about sexuality. And, you know, the majority of people with vaginas do not have orgasms or penetrative sex alone. I mean, some do and, yeah. and good on, good on them. I mean, that's, that's great. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's basic geography. Like it, yes. it doesn't, it's, it's more challenging. And, and what I would like people to kind of think is like, this is not a problem with me. This mm-hmm. is just approaching it in a different way. I sort of feel like maybe this is a little bit of propaganda on the male part where <laughs> they tell us that you have um, orgasms through sex, so they don't have to do the extra work. That's my feeling right now. <laughs> I, mean, I think we've been sold a bill of goods here. <laughs> well, and this is where I think we come into this, right? Where we're talking about sort of patriarchal I- ideals, right? Or or kind of a male-centered approach. And and we can all perpetrate these ideas, right? We, mm-hmm. we know that, that women themselves can incorporate these views and, and these kind of views hurt everyone because what they do is they, they're not helpful to men either, right? These ideas that, you know, because these sorts of things that, um, if we're talking about like a very penis centric view, this is not that far off from the ideas of like, you know, men don't have feelings and men are just after one thing and all these kind mm-hmm. of hopes that, that are not factual. And, and, you know, I, I guess I see another side of it too, which is that when, when, you know, people with penises bodies change and, and their erections and penises may not work as they once did, this can be really devastating for people who have this idea that like their, their well-being and their importance is connected to their erection. So all of these ideas, like they, they do a disservice to all of us. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I think too, um, you know, in fairness to men, people with penises, we are taught as women, you know, like we do grow up thinking they get the, the better end of the deal in the bedroom. Um, you know, it's easier for them. Um, they expect it from us. It's kind of part of our worth. But I think if we understood, like I understand from my husband and hopefully people do in long-term relationships that sex is a way of connecting. It's emotional. You know, it's, of course it's physical, but it's emotional um, for him too. And, you know, when I look at it that way, that's when I really start to try to figure out what's going on with us. When I think of it as just pure pleasure, I just, it's something I'll work on another time. But when I think about it as him being impacted by this emotionally and that it hurts him, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, then it's something I feel more invested in resolving. And I don't think we tend to look at men, men that way, like having this as an emotional need, a need to connect with us, a need to feel loved by us, a need to feel desired just like we do. Yeah. And I mean, something you talked about before, like orgasm inequality, which again, might be a bit of a niche concept in, in, in the sex therapy world, but it is real, right? Like hmm. I am certainly not advocating for, for, for people, for women to have pleasure, right? Like I think there's been a, a lifetime of, of many women not. So I would never encourage that. Um, I, I think it's important to, you know, that everyone is having pleasure and whatever that means for them. The pursuit of the orgasm, though, can become a kind of trap itself, right? Because, you know, if you are on, if you are constantly thinking about what's going to happen next, you're not actually in the moment. 
which can interfere with with things like orgasm. So, but I liked what you were saying about, again, kind of looking at this from a, a male perspective of also like what intimacy does and, and what intimacy, physical intimacy means for different people, right? And it comes back to kind of like my team approach. Like, uh, again, you're you're a team. And so the team members are going to get their care needs met in different ways. And, and how do we kind of make it work for both people? Um, it's, it's when we are individualistic, like, well, this is what I want. This is what they want. You know, then it becomes more likely to be kind of adversarial. And so I think it's important to kind of like, again, like we're, we're partners, we're a team, like, how do we resolve this? And I think, yeah, so go ahead. Well, no, just when you said adversarial, it made me think, well, again, back to creating resentment. Mm -hmm. So, Yeah. Sorry, carry on, because that's just made me go, oh, right, another way we build resentment in our relationships. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's really tricky, right? Like, I think the, the most important thing that you can do is kind of slow yourself down and also like, okay, well, what is the barrier to this? Like, what am I frustrated about? I mean, we're, we're not a very, um, we don't, you know, I don't think in this society we resolve conflict in very kind of helpful ways. We're not, we often don't receive communication around what healthy conflict looks like and how to resolve it. And, and these things play out in different ways. So I think again, like coming back to this idea of like, okay, if we're a team, like how do we approach this? And I, I will often encourage people, like if they are feeling dissatisfied or, or, you know, frustrated with their sexual life, you know, instead of approaching it with like, I feel this way, and this is what I'm not getting, like, I often encourage people to use more collaborative language, like, you know, this is what I think isn't working for us, or this is what I would like our sex life to look like, what are your thoughts around this? Um, and, and opening it up to a conversation of like, how do we resolve this? Not, not, this is what I'm unhappy about, and this is what you should do about it, right? Which, I mean, anyone who works will know that that doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> so you have given me so much to think about. Like, I I actually feel like I'm formulating a new game plan for my relationship, which is really refreshing for me because I never, I did feel stuck. We feel stuck. And um, I know it's now become the thing we don't even talk about. We can't even joke about it. It's such a sensitive topic. So I feel very, um, I feel very inspired and hopeful by our conversation today. If you could say two or three things to the people listening to this podcast mm -hmm. that I that like that are, you know, coming from your very. I don't know if it's unique in your community, but it's sort of unique in my world. Your very unique perspective and, you know, your insights into this. What are like maybe two or three pieces of advice you would give? Okay. Um, <laughs> thank you. And I, I'm, I'm really happy that some of what I'm talking about is, is resonating. So, so I, I kind of made some notes around what I thought would be helpful that I, I think is helpful. So one is that almost everything we know about sex and long-term relationships is not true. So when I look at the people who are engaging in sex that they are happy with, they are approaching it, like I said, as kind of a team approach. Like, how do we rectify what we're concerned about and how do we prioritize it? And again, 
sort of prioritizing is around creating that responsive desire. So again, you know, this is one of the most things that I get often pushback when I suggest this. But I think a lot of sex therapists will say scheduling time for intimacy. And that does not mean scheduling sex, because again, a a surefire way to not want to do something is to say, you know, you have to do this at seven o'clock on Wednesday. But scheduling time for intimacy, and that can mean the the potential of sex, but it can also mean like time to be on your own, like prioritizing your marriage. So for your relationship. So there's a, a family therapist and, and a couple therapist named Bill Doherty, and he talks about the kind of intentional marriage. And I was really influenced by that. Like, again, it's that like what you were saying before about foreplay, those like moments together where you're kind of just being kind to one another. Um, so intentionality really, really matters. So prioritizing it, like, and again, you know, setting yourself up for success, like, most people are not going to want to be physically intimate if they've got like their children are there with all their friends or, you know, you've got parents staying with you. I mean, those are putting unrealistic kind of expectations on anyone who's feeling a little bit shaky around sexuality. So like set yourself up for success, like do what you know is going to make it more palatable for you. So that's that's kind of one piece. Um, you know, the second important piece, and we haven't talked about this as much, but I think this is essential, is that it's essential to look at the barriers that are causing you to be reluctant to engage sexually. So for, for some folk, especially in perimenopause and menopause, like that may be because your mood is changing, you're, you know, you're having hot flashes, you're having genitourinary syndrome or menopause symptoms, so UTIs, um, you're having dryness, you're having pain mm-hmm. with penetrative sex. These are all things that can be addressed. And, and what I would say is that if you are having any sort of pain during penetrative sex or any sort of sex acts, talk to your doctor, ask for a referral to a gynecologist if indicated. You know, one of the people, the unsung heroes of the healthcare system are pelvic floor physiotherapists. And I would encourage anyone to, you know, again, if they're having any sort of discomfort in the vulva or vaginal regions, see a pelvic floor physiotherapist. Jackie, I'm not sure if you've talked about this on your podcast, what that is, or if you want me to give an overview of what yeah, that give is. Yeah, we've spoken a little bit about it and I've done, um, I've been to Mississauga Pelvic Health and they are amazing. I, mm-hmm. I actually posted um, some of their videos on our Instagram mm-hmm. and TikTok, mm-hmm. but I would love if you just give a quick overview of that. Yeah, yeah. So pelvic floor physiotherapy is a specialized branch of physiotherapy, but they involve internal and external assessments um, and treatment of basically the pelvic floor muscle. So they can, they treat men and women. So pelvic floor muscles are basically located between the hip bones and the sacrum, and they serve almost as a bowl to support the pelvic organs, which include the bladder and the colon and the uterus. Um, And, you know, there are so many things that can affect people's pelvic floor, which then can affect the way that people feel, uh, like irritable bowel syndrome, endometriosis, bladder and urinary tract infections, the changes that happen with menopause, if you have a tense pelvic floor, Mm-hmm. Uh, scar tissue, all of these things can create atrophy, like just atrophy. Pain. Yeah. C-section, laparoscopy. I mean, any of these things can cause scarring and, and pelvic floor dysfunction. 
And this is something that I always will say to people, like people, you know, based on, I don't even know where they came from, but like when Kegels sort of made their presence known in the the world, (laughs) people were sort of obsessed with these ideas of doing Kegels. And, you know, colleagues that I know who are pelvic floor physios would say like, oh, this is not what they should be doing because they already have a tightened pelvic floor and it's just making it worse. So, so if you're engaging in any of these kinds of like exercises, um, please, you know, consider seeing a pelvic floor physiotherapist. You don't need a doctor's referral. Um, unfortunately, they are not covered by OHIP. That's a separate frustration. That's another issue. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they are so well worth. You can self-refer, um, you know, and, and I would highly recommend that. So, so if you are having pain or you are having things like low mood that are affecting your intimate life, please reach out to someone like a therapist, a sex therapist, a doctor, a GP, like a gynecologist, anyone that can try and and rectify these. Because, you know, again, like your body does a good job of protecting itself. If you're in pain, it's, it's, it's letting you know something and it should, people should have a look at that. Um, I was told by someone a long time ago, uh, I, I might've been in my teen years or early twenties and I was having very, like through my whole reproductive years had very painful um, ovulation. Mm-hmm. And I was told repeatedly that some women just get it, you know, typical, just deal with it. Um, mm-hmm. But someone told me at some point, you know, the bo- pain is the body's signal that something is wrong. And if everything's running the way it should, you should not be experiencing pain. And, you know, painful sex due to many different issues, as you've mentioned, that's not normal. And you should not live with that. And I think that's that's unfortunately because of our physiology, women are really taught to suck it up and live with these things that cause discomfort or pain or displeasure, or, uh, even our, our emotions. Like we're, we really are taught to sweep that stuff under the carpet. And it really yeah. is our body's way of saying, hey, you have to pay attention to this. Yeah. And I mean, I think this is why diagnostic clarification is so important, right? Because sometimes, and again, this is like a much longer conversation, but sometimes there are nerve pain that happens like in different parts of the vulva, which again, it's, there isn't anything physically wrong necessarily, but there is now a chronic pain that's developed secondary to nerve pain. So that's why I think diagnostic clarification, if you're having pain with sex is, is so important, right? Because you want to know how you can approach it, like what the treatment recommendations for these things are. So that's, it's a really, really important part. Um, you know, something else I kind of think, and, and I, I think about this a lot in life in general, in our society, we know our society fetishizes the young, the beautiful, the thin, the white. I mean, I don't think there's anyone that would kind of disagree with us. Mm-hmm, on this, like, I agree. The able-bodied, but liking yourself, particularly as you age is a is a revolutionary act and i also believe it is an act of choice that is not always easy mm-hmm. but every day you can try to create new kind of neuro thought patterns in the brain by countering these ideas that were fed that you're too old that you're too unattractive that you're irrelevant um and and my friends and i always refer to this as like cbting ourselves <laughs> which is like a <laughs> reference to cognitive behavioral therapy um where where you actually are challenging your thoughts uh and and saying like okay you know what this is what i'm feeling but this isn't necessarily true and the more that you can counter these thoughts i mean i'm making it sound very simplistic but but it is it is something that you can do every day i mean i think what happens often is that 
we feel bad about ourselves. And then we feel bad that we feel bad about ourselves. So it's like, I have low self-esteem. I don't like the way this is. And now I should feel better about myself. Like, why can't I feel better about myself? And again, it's that going meta. It's that rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the best way to try and counter that is to counter it with a rational other argument. And And the more that you are able to do that, you know, the hope is that you will then start to actually feel differently. So I'm a huge fan of neuroplasticity. Mm-hmm. Um, I did CBT for years for mm-hmm. some trauma, which was incredible. Um, but can you give an example in this case, like changing our our thought patterns on this? Like what would be an example of CBTing yourself in the morning? Say you look in the mirror and you think I look old or I don't like the way I look. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I would say like, for example, <laughs> You know, and again, like I'm talking about my own kind of menopause transition, which is again, when you're sort of having hot flashes and having to take off layers of clothing, you know, I, I kind of, I, I will question those things too. And I, I think if I'm looking at myself in the mirror, I mean, the more that I'm sort of hyper-focused on the way that I look, the more likely I am to pick out the things I don't like. So I literally will say, you know, like, no, okay, you're doing that what are the things you like about yourself? What's nice about yourself? And it's interesting because if you look at, if you look at sort of um, some different treatments for people with, you know, know, different kind of like body dysmorphia, often they will talk about almost like a mindfulness exercise of like focusing on the different parts of your body that you do like. So looking at your eyes, looking at, you know, other parts of you that you feel more comfortable with. Um, You know, and again, like I'm not saying this is the only thing This is a a big part of everything too. But, you know, the more that we kind of have these thought patterns that are just negative and the more that we're telling ourselves this, they become more reinforced. Um, So again, like it's, it's offering yourself different, different thoughts, right. And, and also relying on other people and, and, and talking to your friends, talking to your partners, surrounding yourself with more positive sort of age appropriate resources. Um, you yeah. know, there's a, there's a movie that I, I highly recommend anyone should watch. Um, it's called good luck to you, Leo grand. I'm not sure if you've heard of it. Uh, it's Emma Thompson. And basically Emma Thompson, uh, is a recently widowed sort of 55 year old retired teacher who decides to, uh, hire a male sex worker, uh, to have a sexual experience because she's never had an orgasm. And it is a very, amazing and kind of really um, great movie that talks about these kinds of issues that we're talking about. These, these ideas of, of feeling not confident in yourself, these ideas of feeling like there's something wrong with you. And it's a very interesting movie because she takes the kind of, I would say, very proactive approach of like, I'm, I'm going to have these different experiences. Um, I think that part of it to know is that, you know, diet culture and, and all of these things are, they're billion dollar industries mm-hmm. and they benefit from people feeling bad about themselves. This fuels an entire industry. So again, like sometimes even when I don't feel great, I think to myself, like if you are countering these negative thoughts about yourself, you are sort of undermining a corrupt system. And again, does it always help? No, but it kind of makes me chuckle and it makes me move well, on. Well, makes you feel like you've got some control. <laughs> it's interesting. I just have to like do a quick segue on this. Um, I learned from speaking to someone who works in marketing research um, that every woman is worth $70,000 US 
to brands that um, market, um, well, I mean, pads and tampons. Mm -hmm. So we go from like diapers, we have like a five-year break and then we're pads and tampons. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, sanitary products to help us with leaking and urinal incontinence. And that's why pelvic floor therapy is not really discussed because it is actually a solution. Um, and I've said this before a few times, but we, you know, uh, I spoke to a marketing director in France with a product to help with pelvic floor rejuvenation mm -hmm. and they don't sell the product domestically because women in France get pelvic floor therapy as soon as they have a child or yeah. et So they don't experience urinal incontinence, not for reasons related to aging or birth. So we really are being... Mm -hmm. We have sold a bill of goods here because we mm -hmm. are worth a lot of money to brands everywhere. But it would be great if brands would smarten up and use that power for good instead of evil. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, that would be my dream. <laughs> as I'm <laughs> sure, as I'm sure, just it would for be women yours. products, do what you want with men's. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, I, yeah, I, I do feel like you're right because mindfulness is such a big thing where we are hearing more and more about it. But I think mindfulness is beneficial, like you said, with libido and sexual activity, but also just our own, the way that women, especially in this perimenopause, menopause um, phase, it's like how they view themselves and, and how we build up our torn down confidence due to a society that really promotes ageism and stigmas. And it's really hard for us to feel good about ourselves when everyone around us is telling us we're invisible. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting. I, I've talked about this before and, and it's, I feel as though, you know, and, and thanks to people like Dr. Jen Gunther, who has written an amazing book called The Menopause Manifesto, Menopause yeah. Manifesto, That's um, a which great I, book. yeah, highly recommend. Um, but there are more and more now people in Gen X who are in the menopause transition. And I feel really kind of hopeful about this. You know, we are a generation that <laughs> with the latchkey kids, I mean, we, we were doing a lot of things young that other people weren't. And we were the first generation that really, you know, learned about sex during the HIV AIDS crisis. Yeah. So we have had a lot of different experiences and in kind of, um, you know, every generation has their own experiences, but mm -hmm. I feel as though we were a generation that was sort of more open than previous ones around talking about sex, about talking about sexual abuse, about talking about workplace harassment, um, a lot of different things that came up for this generation. And now we're in menopause. Mm -hmm. And I feel as though it is, you know, from my perspective, I see a lot more people talking about what they're experiencing and kind of refusing to be quiet about it. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm privileged because I, you know, I'm, I'm a therapist and I work in a gynecology clinic. So obviously no one's going to, um, be surprised when I'm talking about my hot flashes or taking off layers of clothing. But, you know, I, I see that as also a responsibility because the more that we talk about these things, the more they become less stigmatized, you know, pregnancy yeah. was hugely stigmatized 50 years ago. Yeah. Um, and, and that changed and that changed mostly because of a group of women who talked Mis about it. Yeah. Miscarriages, yeah. you know, it, and, and I'm sure it still exists, but if you, you didn't tell anyone you were pregnant until you were 12 weeks and considered safe. Why? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, a miscarriage might make everyone around you uncomfortable. God yeah. forbid. Yeah. 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 Honestly, Nicole, this was such a great conversation and, we're going to have to do another one on CBT because I have been reading about CBT for menopause and I was always curious as to how that might 
manifest or how that what that looks like and what that mm-hmm. experience is like. So I would love to have you join me again. But this conversation was critical because it shone a new light on a topic that affects all women. It is the 100% club, but it doesn't just affect women. It affects mm-hmm. everybody. And, you know, we are talking about this in the context of women as our self-esteem goes down and our cholesterol goes up. But, you know, it's important to have this conversation earlier and earlier because like you said you you really made it to me quite clear that and i love that you said this that you know we we are not in that honeymoon phase forever but the expectation feels like we should be and if we're not something is wrong and i i love the fact that all the things that i have thought were wrong are actually normal Mm -hmm. and the things i thought they were supposed to be are actually practically fiction so I can't thank you enough because that was a real strong shift in mindset. And I hope everybody listens to this podcast because I think it will change everybody's mind, not just mine. Well, thank you so much. I've so enjoyed being here and I would love to come back another time. So thank you. It's been really, really lovely. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.